Hello, and welcome to the Antioch Fort Worth weekly podcast. At Antioch, our desire is to cultivate a passion for Jesus and his purposes on the earth. To connect with us in community, partner with us through giving, or visit on a Sunday morning, please visit AntiochFortWorth.com. All right, so I don't know how many of you follow college football, but... This offseason, there's been a lot of shakeup in the coaching ranks, and one of the people who moved was a guy by the name of Brian Kelly, and he was the head coach of Notre Dame, and if you saw any videos of Coach Kelly, he came across as a really kind of buttoned-up, Midwestern kind of guy, kind of what you'd expect as the head coach for a prestigious private university. But this offseason, LSU came a-calling, and when you saw Coach Kelly in his first public appearance at LSU, this strange thing began to happen this thick southern accent began to come out of his mouth. And after just a little bit of time around the swamp folks down there in Louisiana, he was already starting to mirror them, to more closely resemble them in the way they speak, to value the things that they value. And we can laugh at Coach Kelly, but this is something that's true in some form or fashion for every one of us. The people we spend time around, the environments that we spend time in, they shape who we are. They can influence our affections. They change the way we behave. And this is something that I always try and keep in mind, but it's been especially important for me in the area of my spiritual walk. I came to a realization not too long ago that prayer was not as high a priority for me as what it needed to be, that it wasn't a place that I was very comfortable operating. And so I started to say, what are environments that I can put myself in to begin to stir this up within me? And no sooner do I start looking for it than the opportunities start to present themselves we went to a section night with our life group, and they announced that they were starting a men's prayer time once a week. And then I got to thinking to myself, you know, I should really start going to pre-service prayer, and I immediately started making excuses not to go to pre-service prayer. Like, oh, service times have changed, and I don't really know what time it starts anymore. And <laughs> no lie, next day, got the weekly Antioch update email, and there at the very top of the email, in big, bold letters, it said, pre-service prayer, 845. <laughs> it's like, message received, <laughs> I'm going... So I began to go to these things, and as I've placed myself in environments where my heart can align with what's going on, prayer has become a higher priority for me. It's become something I'm more comfortable with. It's become a place that I'm quicker to turn to. And that's good because the Bible says that we are made to commune with God. We are made to know him. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? It was to love the Lord your God. And you cannot love someone if you do not communicate with them. We are made to love God to know God, and to communicate with God. The sad thing is a lot of us don't get really excited about that. And I think the reason is that we have a bad perspective. The Lord's Prayer, which is where we're going to spend time this morning, is about adjusting our perspective. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't say, when you pray, pray this. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Then he jumps in And he shows us this is the mindset, this is the perspective that I want you to have when you're praying. And there's nothing wrong with praying the Lord's Prayer verbatim. I'd encourage you to pray through Scripture on a regular basis. But that's what Jesus was aiming at wasn't to give us something to memorize or a mantra to repeat. He provides this as a model to tune our hearts. So Charles Spurgeon once said that he's seen lots of people build a model of a house, but never wants to see someone build the model and then pack their bags intending to move in. You build the model so that you understand it better. It's a guide for you. It's not because that's where you plan to live. And I like how C.S. Lewis put it. He said that the words are the movement of the conductor's baton, not the music itself. 
The music is what's coming from our hearts. The waving of the baton is great, but we're here for the music. This is a prayer designed to get our hearts in tune so the music of prayer can flow. God knows what you need before you ask him. So flowery words are great and they can be encouragement for, for other people, but that's not what he's looking for. He's after your heart. He wants to connect with your heart. He knows the more that you connect with him, the more you understand what his heart is. And just like what we were talking about earlier, our hearts will become more like his. So Jesus leads us through the prayer so that we can better understand the heart of the Father, of how he wants us to view his kingdom, to tune our perspective to truth so that we can, more, we can connect more deeply with him. He knows that if you start thinking like he thinks and caring about what he cares about and loving what he loves, that it will change how you live, how you behave, the decisions you make, and where you go in life. So as we get started this morning, I want to invite you all to stand, and we're going to read this together out loud. Put it up on the screen so we're all in the same version, because I know many people memorize it in different versions. So we'll start at Our Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of God. All right, y'all can be seated. So as he begins, the first perspective that Jesus wants us to get is like he's our father. He could pick any metaphor to describe himself, but over and over throughout scripture and throughout the teachings of Jesus, he says, call me father. I want you to see me as a beautiful combination of power and love, because that's what a good father is. A good father is strong, and a good father is loving. And when you speak to him, I want you to think about that he loves you enough, he cares about you enough to listen to you, and he's strong enough to take care of you. And many of us don't pray because we don't believe one of those two things. Either we think he's distant and he doesn't care about what's going on in our lives, or we think that he's powerless to do anything about it. If we truly believe that, how would it impact our life? You see just a few verses later in Matthew 6, he says, Don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles seek these things, and your Father knows that you need them. He knows it, so do not be anxious. It's not that he knows like he's aware of it. He knows it, and he cares enough to meet the need. Could you imagine leaving here this morning not being worried about everything, knowing God knows what I need and it's going to be okay? Those of you who have kids, I want you to remember for a moment to when they were first born. If you don't have kids, just imagine holding your little baby in your arms. And while you're doing that, I want you to think about your theology. And if it's helpful for you, go ahead and hold your arms like you're holding your baby. If it's not, that's fine. <laughs> but... God says he's a father. What does that mean? What do you want that child to know about you? That child would not be here without you. They are here because of your will and your power and your grace and their dependent, their continued existence is dependent on you. They can't feed themselves. They can't really do anything. They continue to exist because of your grace. They don't produce value around the house. They don't clean up. They don't pay bills. In fact, 
you have to clean up after them, including their own waste, all day long. And yet you gladly take care of them because you delight in them, because they are made in your image and you love them. You want them to know that you're loving enough to listen to them, that you're strong enough to meet their needs, and you're wise enough to know how to meet those needs, that you're committed to their good, that their relationship with you is unshakable, that it will never stop, that they are your child and nothing will change that. No matter how far away they move, no matter what kind of mess they make of their life, you will always love them. They will always be your child and they can never alter that relationship. You want, to trust, you want them to trust that when you say things, it's not just to be capricious. Like, go jump in circles over there because I think it's funny. You want them to know that when you tell them to do something, it's for their good. It's to make them better. You want them to honor you, not because you're insecure, but because it's good for their soul. You want them to love you. You want to have a loving relationship with them where they know you want to spend time with them. You want them to crawl up in the bed beside you and tell you about their day, tell you about their heart, not because you don't know the facts about it, but because you want to hear them tell it to you, how they feel about it. Folks, you exist because God willed it to be so. You don't provide him any value. He doesn't need you. It's not about anything that you've done, but he likes you and he loves you. Your God is loving enough to listen to you. He wants to, and he's strong enough to take care of you, and he's wise enough to know how to do that. He's committed to your good. He who began a good work within you will be faithful to complete it. If we and all our imperfection want all these things for our children, how much more does a perfect father? He is power and affection combined in our lives. And when we can learn to fully walk in that, it washes away anxiety. It washes away despair. And don't hear me saying, shame on you for feeling anxious and depressed. We all go through seasons of that. And we need people to come around us and speak truth around us and remind us of these two things. We need to remind us that we have a perfect father. So once we understand who God is, Jesus moves into the first thing we're supposed to pray for. And it's really the centerpiece for the prayer. Everything else flows through the statement, hallowed be your name. So what does that mean to hallow your name? So hallow means to sanctify or to make holy. And whenever you see it in the Bible for what God does to us, it's the process by which God makes us more holy. He makes us more precious. He makes us more valuable. He makes us more pure. He makes us into something more. Now, obviously, that's not what it means when we do it to God. We don't make God holy. He already is. So when we sanctify God, we're saying that we want him to be regarded as holy, treated as precious, celebrated as wonderful. We want him to receive the honor and respect that he deserves. And when we say this, we're not just making a statement of, God, you're great, you're awesome. In Greek, uh, verbs have different moods. There's the declarative mood, like this seat, this, the shirt is pink, that chair is brown. That's not what we're dealing with here. This is the imperative mood. It's a command, or when said to a superior, it's a request. So we're asking God, we're, 
saying, Father in heaven, make your name hallowed. Make your reputation treasured. Make people think that you're incredible. God, move and change something. Make it so people honor and value and treasure you the way that they should. And this is not a subjective thing. God is objectively the greatest thing in the universe. If we were home cleaning up and I started crumpling up $100 bills and throwing them in the trash, because my house is just littered with $100 bills, um, my wife would very quickly say, what in the world are you doing? Well, I'm just cleaning up some of this garbage. She would be very quick to correct me and try to bring my thinking around to reality, saying that this is not garbage. This holds value. This can buy a number of goods and services. You need to get your thinking in line with what is. She wouldn't be correcting me just because she wants to argue with me. She's doing it because she loves me. And she's not saying, oh yeah, this is garbage. Here, let me help you take all this garbage out. No, because she loves me. She would correct me and bring me around to the truth, to the knowledge of what is. God is the most valuable thing in the universe. All things are made for him, by him and for him. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He is a fountain of living water. He is the best and most satisfying thing in the universe. When you're asking God to do this to somebody, you're asking him to open their eyes so they will see what they were made for and what will satisfy them. If they put anything else in that ultimate position, they are missing their purpose and they are missing out on the love that is offered to them. So we're praying that their eyes would be opened so they would get on board with the reality of what is. Let them see that there is joy and life and that he is the best thing. And we need to spend time thinking about who he is. He is the great I am. He is self-existent. He has no beginning. And he is totally free. He will show grace to who he wants to show grace. He will be merciful to who he wants to show mercy. He can do whatever he wants. We cannot. We have all kinds of limitations. Legally, physically, genetically, in gifting and capacity. But God has none. And not only can he do whatever he wants, he has the power to pull it off. I could look at my children and say, I promise I'm never going to let anybody hurt you. And I could want that with everything in my heart, but I do not have the power to pull that off. If they hang their hopes and dreams on that promise from me, it's going to fail them because I'm a man. But our God, when he says he's going to do something, he is going to come through. Nothing is going to get in his way. So how do we hallow his name? In Numbers 20, the Israelite people were thirsty, and God told Moses to speak to a rock and it would produce water. But instead, Moses got angry, he berated the people, and he hit the rock with a stick. So when God was speaking to Moses later, he was like, I'm upset with you because you didn't, uh, let me get it right, because you did not believe me to sanctify me in the eyes of the people. God links believing him with sanctifying him. He said, I told you to speak and you got angry and you beat things. And that's not what I was looking for. You dishonored me in the eyes of the people. Think about if somebody asks you for advice and you give them advice and they don't follow it and things go terribly for, you, for them. And then they come back and ask you for advice on the same issue. I'd say, I already told you what to do and you didn't believe me. <laughs> God says, Moses, I told you a way to do this and you blew me off and that does not honor me. If you want to honor God, if you want to hallow, hallow his name, then you believe him when he says that a certain way of doing things is best. 
when he says to love your enemies and not to seek revenge, when he says not to love money, when he says to forgive, even if it's not the most advantageous thing in the moment, God, we're going to believe that you know how this world works better than we do, and we're going to trust you. Hallowing him is taking him seriously and honoring what he says above all others. And it also means that we glorify him. In Isaiah 29, it says, they will sanctify my name. They will stand in awe of me. If you want to hallow his name, you worship him. You sing his praise. You stand in awe of a holy God who calms the wind and rides the storm. Then Jesus prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is a revolutionary statement. When you stand in one kingdom and you say that you want another kingdom to come, you are standing in open rebellion to the powers that be. But this is a big deal to Jesus. He says that when he went from city to city declaring the, the good news about the kingdom, he says that he was sent for that purpose. And then when he sent his apostles out, he said, go heal people. He said, and when you take away their disease and they're looking at you completely stupefied, look them in the eye and say, the kingdom is here. He said, even if they reject you, you say, that's fine, that's okay, but the kingdom is still here. When the apostle Paul was in prison, it said he testified about the kingdom from morning to evening. This is what Jesus and his apostles were preaching about, and it's what he wants you thinking about, talking about, caring about, and living for right up until he hits stop on the whole world. So what does it mean to pray for the kingdom? I would contend that your heart has already prayed for the kingdom to come, even if your words and your thoughts haven't caught up with it yet. Because in a kingdom, the character and culture are shaped by the king. When we say this prayer, we're saying, God, we want what you care about to shape the culture. We want what you care about to be what permeates it. But God's already the king, right? So what? But look around you. Proverbs 16 says, In his presence, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Psalm 89 says, Justice and righteousness are the foundations of your throne. Steadfastness and faithfulness go before you. In God's heaven, there is joy, there is rightness, there is justice, there is love. That's what it's like in his kingdom, but we look around us and we realize that that's not what we're living in right now. And our hearts stir in reaction to that. When we hear about yet another school shooting with a loss, a senseless loss of young lives, when we hear the statistics about human trafficking, that there's 313,000 victims here in Texas alone, 79,000 of those being minors, when we hear things like that, our hearts cry out, I don't want it to be this way. This is wrong. I want this to stop. Oh God, something needs to change because it's pervasive throughout the whole world. Why do you wait? You've inaugurated the kingdom. Why didn't you just go ahead and bring it in its fullness right right then at that moment? And we have to think about what would that look like if he'd done that? What if it were up to us to decide who was in and who was out? At first, we'd probably get some general agreement. Murderers, yeah, they're out. That's pretty easy. Uh, Rapists, oh yeah, they're out too. But then somebody would be like, okay, what about people who watch pornography? And there'd be some of us who'd be like, yeah, it's a supply and demand industry. They're contributing to the problem. They're, They're out. And then there'd be others who'd be like, oh wait, for some of those people, it's more of a disease. It's more of an addiction. We need to have mercy for those people. But those self righteous people, we need to do something about them. And the more you get into it, 
the more you see what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the, the, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. If God came in and said, let's do it, let's wipe out everyone who has evil in them, you would not make it. And neither would I. So what do we do with that? God, rather than bringing his righteous kingdom and crushing us in our iniquity, he sent Jesus. He came in to enemy-occupied territory and said, the kingdom is here because I'm here. He said, I'm starting a new kingdom, and it's right here. It's right now. It's here in your midst. And in my kingdom, not only do we not commit murder, but we don't hate. Not only do we not commit adultery, but we don't lust. In my kingdom, our word is our bond. And he continues to tell the people what the kingdom looks like, and they start to realize this isn't an easy thing. Those are impossibly high standards. And you're left asking, how can I ever get in? And Jesus says, you can't unless you're born again. He says, I'm coming to renovate you. I am going to give you his spirit, the spirit of the king, and it will change you. It will make you who was once an enemy into a friend. God comes and says, this place isn't right. This place isn't peaceful. It's not joyful. Your dad shouldn't have left. That person shouldn't have hurt you the way that they did. Those disappointments in your life, they are bad, but I am coming and I'm going to make it right again. Jesus was the inauguration like a seed that was planted, and in his mercy, he began a revolution. He's changing the hearts of those who will come to him. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying for enemies to be made into friends. Bring, those, bring, bring them into your kingdom and renovate their hearts. Change them from someone who loves evil to someone who loves you. So the prayer continues, give us this day our daily bread. So Jesus is saying he doesn't just want to be with us in the majestic moments, but in the mundane moments as well. Notice though, he says, give us this day our daily bread, not God hook me up and make me stupid rich, right? <laughs> He's saying, Pray that he will provide for you, but enough to help you live in this moment. The reality for us today, most of us are not in danger of running out of the bread that we need for today. So is this prayer just for poor people? No, he's, there's something in this that he wants all of us to get about our hearts and how we relate to stuff. Where are we supposed to fall on the spectrum between St. Francis and the televangelist? Saint, Fr right? Saint Francis gave away everything that he had to the poor. It got to the point that his father locked him in the cellar and said, if you don't quit doing that, I'm going to disown you and take away everything I've ever given you. So Saint Francis gave him back everything he'd ever given him, including the clothes on his body, and walked off naked into the woods. On the other side of the spectrum, you've got pastors with multi-million dollar homes and private jets. Where are we supposed to fall on the spectrum? I don't think God's calling us to woodland nudity, but <laughs> this doesn't feel quite right either, <laughs> right? God invites us to pray this day for our daily bread, and it's a mentality that he's tried to give us all through his relationship with his people. 
when the Israelites were leaving slavery in Egypt, he said, I'm going to give you bread from heaven, and you're going to go out each day, and you're going to gather enough for today. Don't try to grab up a whole lot of it. Just get what you need. The whole community is just going to get what they need for today. You're going to gather it six days, and on the sixth day, you're going to gather enough for the Sabbath, because on that day, I want you to rest. And he tells them in Deuteronomy 8, I give you this command so you might live. I humbled you and gave you manna in the wilderness that I might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He doesn't want them to be shallow people who are only focused on the physical. And he needs them to learn this because he's about to lead them into a land where there's abundance, where there's a lot of food, there's a lot of livestock, there's a lot of blessing that's going to come to them. And he doesn't want them to get there and think that they got it by their power and their hand. He wants us to pray every day, give us this day our daily bread, because he wants us to be synced up with reality. He's warning us against a distortion in our perspective. If we grab too much and you become about grabbing it, you'll forget me, and you'll think that all this is because you pulled it off. And the moment we start thinking that our money and our possessions are about us, that we did this, we get out of sync with reality. Because did you contribute at all to your ability to think your ability to feel, for your heart to continue beating. It's all a gift. So when you get around money and possessions, don't lose touch and think it's these physical things that sustain me because it is God that keeps you alive. But when we get our thinking wrong on this, not only is it a distortion of our perspective, but it's a derailing of our purpose as well. He told the people of the Old Testament, then when you forget about me, you will start chasing other gods and that way leads to death. And that's what the other nations did around them. They would worship these gods, and they would try to manipulate them to get them to give them different things. And so with that mindset, they would give their child to be a temple prostitute, or they would burn their child alive as a sacrifice to their gods, trying to get more stuff. They would sell out and destroy people for the sake of what they could get. If you begin to obsess about these things, you're not only disconnected from the fact that God keeps you alive, but you've forgotten your purpose, that you're supposed to love God and love people. And folks, we're prone to the same distortions today. It just looks differently. This year on Black Friday, there were eight people in the U.S. who were shot, one being a 10-year-old girl. Three people died because people were fighting over stuff before it sold out so we could celebrate a holiday commemorating the birth of Christ. God made us to love God and love people, but instead we would destroy people to get stuff. And it's not wrong to have things. God has blessed some some of you with the ability to easily make money, and that can be a blessing as long as you don't sell out your families and other people in service of it. We're made to use things and love people, not the other way around. We get up each day and acknowledge, I eat because God gave me the resources Because God put me in a place where I could use the skills that he gave me to make money. God has a purpose for my life. And when I set my gaze on his purposes and his promises, he will take care of me. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And if Jesus stopped with the first half of that, it would be really easy for us. Because we all like forgiveness, right? We all feel really good about that. But that second part is a lot tougher especially because we live in a culture that is marked by unforgiveness. 
We love revenge. We love when people get what's coming to them. It's everywhere. It's in the songs that we listen to. Carrie Underwood has recorded a ton of great songs. Her number one selling single, do y'all know what it is? It's the one where she talks about she dug her keys into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive, right? <laughs> How many movies have you seen where the whole plot of the movie is about getting revenge for some way that somebody has wronged you? I would be willing to bet that some of you have friendships or relationships where someone has hurt you, and to this day, whenever you think about that, your mind immediately goes back to the moment that that relationship imploded. And it doesn't take much to dial up those emotions all over again. Some of you may be embittered towards your parents, and you grip onto that and you preserve that unforgiveness, but the problem with that is that the Bible says unforgiveness is going the opposite way of the gospel. You cannot hold on to unforgiveness and hold on to the gospel of grace at the same time. That's like trying to get married and still date other people. It doesn't work. So Jesus put this in the prayer, and he explains it further in verse 14. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus says forgiveness of you and, for, and your forgiveness of other people, they're inextricably linked. In chapter 18, Jesus tells the story of a king who's going to forgive debts. And the first guy comes up, and it says that he owes 10,000 talents. And this would have shocked the crowd that was listening to this because 10,000 is the highest amount that the Greek language had a word for. And talent is the highest denomination of money that they had at the time. So Jesus exhausts the language to explain how much this guy owed. For context, when the historian Josephus was talking about all the taxes that were collected throughout the region, he said that all the taxes combined added up to 600 talents. It's meant to make you think, how could anyone ever build up a debt that big? What kind of king would let that happen? Either his hands are completely off their will, or he has a patience that's beyond our comprehension. <clears throat> so the king calls this guy up and says, I'm, I'm going to sell you and your family to pay off the debt. He's just writing him off. He's dismissing him because there's no way he can pay it back. And the guy hits his knees, and he begs for mercy, and he promises that he'll pay back everything he owes, which is ridiculous. It, the commentator said it would take him approximately 275,000 years to pay back that much debt. Then Jesus says the king had compassion. He makes clear what his motivation was. He doesn't have some plan where he's going to recover those funds that are owed to him. It's based fully on his mercy. And he says, okay, you can go and you're debt free. The amount of compassion the king would have to have to forgive that kind of debt is incredible. But this guy who just received that incredible level of benevolence, he goes out and he finds a man who owes him money. And he says, you need to pay me back right now. And when the guy says, he hits his knees, begs for mercy, uses the exact same words that the first guy did when he was begging for mercy from the king. But instead, the guy chokes him, which was legal, but a huge uh, dishonor. It was a huge insult. And drug him off to be imprisoned until he paid off the debt. And the other servants were astonished, and he went back and told the king. And when the king sees that his forgiveness and grace were not treated as worthwhile, 
He tells this guy, if you don't understand grace, then you don't get grace. And he turns him over to the jailers or the torturers until he should pay all his debt. And it says, this is what happened to all of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. It's a very serious statement. Some of us are in here and we love Jesus, but we're still holding on to bitterness in our heart. But Jesus says that as the forgiven people, we forgive. Now, is this saying if you don't forgive people that you're not saved? No. The way it works is because you have been saved, it should make you into somebody with a gracious heart. The gospel doesn't just forgive debt, it renovates your heart. So just like the immoral woman who washed Jesus' feet, Jesus said, this woman loves much because she has been forgiven much. She understands how broken she is, and she knows that in the midst of that, he still forgave her. When you grab grace like that, it explodes into worship and service. When you know grace, you show grace. So how does that work? The first thing you have to do is you have to acknowledge that there is a legitimate debt owed. When someone does something that hurts you and you say it's not a big deal, that's not forgiveness. That's minimization. There is a real debt, a real transgression, but when you view it through the lens of the cross, you take what they did and you take it to the cross and you let the reality of the cross put it in perspective. When you look at the cross, you see how much God hates sin But the debt was not ignored. It had to be dealt with. We oftentimes want to hold on to unforgiveness because we don't want somebody to get away with it. But in God's economy, nobody gets away with anything. The debt is paid either by the person at the end of times or by the work that Christ did on the cross. When we hold it in that light, we can see how great the mercy of God really is. And it should give you humility that he did that for you. If you don't grasp the fact that you are the fool that racked up the enormous debt, you will never be able to forgive anyone. You'll think you earned the approval. And we, as Christians, we do that all the time. We said, I went to church, I read my Bible, I gave the money, I wore the t-shirt, I'm a good person. But if you don't realize that without him, you have no hope but he still loves you, you're never going to grasp forgiveness. There's a reason that addiction support groups start by saying their name and that they're an addict. When you start out by acknowledging your failure, that you couldn't control your own life, it breeds humility within you. It makes you more merciful when you sit at the cross and you realize that when you operate in your own power, you make a mess of your life, it makes you more merciful towards those around you. You acknowledge that there is real hurt against you, but you take it to the cross and you see it in the light of his mercy. And then you release it. How do you release somebody? You, re- you resist thoughts of revenge. Romans twelve nineteen. You don't seek to do them harm. 1 Thessalonians five fifteen. You wish them well. Luke 6. You grieve over their calamities, Proverbs 24. You pray for them, Matthew 5. You seek reconciliation, Romans 12, which is where it says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace. So I want a quick notice right here. Notice Paul says, as far as it depends on you, because with some people, that will not be possible. 
They will still be a dangerous and unhealthy person. Sometimes there's abuse involved and it would not be safe to go back to that place. So you go to a counselor and you get people who love you to help you navigate that. Lastly, you, becoming, you be willing to come to their relief, Exodus 23. But the reality is sometimes we're just not gonna have the desire to do it. Sometimes we just have to obey as far as we're able and pray that as it says in Romans 5, that God's love will be poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And finally, Jesus gets to, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We don't just pray for forgiveness from past sins, but we pray that God will help us to resist new ones. We declare that we don't want to be a part of this anymore. We are acknowledging we have been set free, but there will be this pull back to that which once held us captive, to that which was going to kill us. There was a, there's a, a woman who was close to our family, and circumstances in life had led her to a place where she was mired in addiction, and she was in a relationship with a guy who was both physically and emotionally abusive. And she got to the point where she wanted to break free from that. And so we invited her into our home, and we did our best to make it a safe environment. We removed any temptation for, that would feed her addiction. And she still had her struggles, but she was she still had struggles but you could see life returning in her but there was a pull it was sometimes fueled by shame sometimes it was fueled by familiarity it would tug her heart back to the place she was before then a friend of hers invited her into a situation that fed her addictions. Instead of celebrating and supporting the trajectory she was on, they were like, oh, it's fine, let's just come, let's relax, let's have a good time. And when she left that environment, instead of coming back to our house, she went back to her abuser. She went back to the situation that had led her to pain and poverty and shame. She'd been given an opportunity for freedom, but the pull was too much for her to resist, and it broke our hearts. And the reality is that in some form or fashion, that is all the struggle that we all face. Jesus has set us free. We were dead in our sins, but he made us alive. And he wants to move us more and more towards freedom. But there will be a tug on us that will try to pull us back into the things, the destructive practices and environments we were in before. Even though we know how destructive it is. There will be a situation or a friend or an environment that will try to pull us back there. You hear that call and you know it leads to death, but there's something about it that's enticing. So we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, protect us from these situations that are going to stir that pull within us. God, give us awareness to recognize what those environments are and wisdom to, and discipline to resist them. But I think it goes beyond that too. Matthew 26 records the night Jesus was betrayed. Jesus knew it was coming. He knew who was going to do it. He knew that Peter was going to deny him. And knowing all this, he leads his disciples to the garden to pray. He tells them, watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. Is he, is he saying pray that you don't face testing? No, he knows that he's going to be tested. He knows that that is coming. He's saying, prepare yourself. 
Prepare your hearts so that when that moment comes, you don't enter into that temptation. You don't react in fear. You don't give in to the impulse. Then Jesus does exactly what he told them to do. He goes to the Father and he says, I know I'm about to enter into this difficult moment. And there's a part of me that wants to bail on the will of God. But before that moment comes, I'm going to turn to the Father and ask him to prepare me for the moment, to keep me aligned with his will. So do you, what do we do when we face temptation? The first thing that we do is we pray. We invite God into the moment. 1 Corinthians 10 says that in temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He will stop temptation long enough to give you a window to get out of there. When you face temptation, turn to God, acknowledge him, tell him what you're thinking and invite him in to the moment. Secondly, we turn to the word of God. Not just in the moment, although that could be good, but before we need it, have those words written on your heart so that when the lines start to get fuzzy, you can turn to the truth. It's in your mind. It's in your heart. It's already there. So I'm going to invite everybody to stand. We're going to have a brief time of ministry. And we're inviting you, if you need prayer for any reason, that you turn to somebody nearby and ask them to pray with you. If you need to be reminded that God cares about you, that he's strong enough to meet your needs, if you're struggling with placing other thoughts or things in a seat of power that they can never fill, if you're struggling with temptation or unforgiveness, if you need prayer for anything at all, please don't leave here today without finding somebody that will pray with you and you can pray together and tune your hearts in agreement with the Father.